Well, good morning. Thank you for being with us today. We are going to uh, deviate from our normal uh, study that we have been on. We've been looking through the uh, book of Genesis, working our way through there. Today we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 7. So if you would open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. I'm going to uh, read for us from there. And of course, the reason for our looking at this passage is because um, it deals with this kind of mysterious character from Genesis named Melchizedek, whose name only occurs in uh, Genesis and then Psalm 110 and then here in this section of Hebrews. And uh, there's quite a bit of argumentation that is made uh, from his name and, and uh, what he's like, etc. So we want to look at that passage today. And uh, so we're going to read from Hebrews chapter 7. And I'm going to uh, begin with us in uh, verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, he has no need, like those priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let's pray. Father, we 
open up this section of your word to discuss Melchizedek and not really Melchizedek. We want to talk about Jesus. And this passage uh, directs us to Jesus. This passage tells us that actually what we read last week in Genesis talking about Melchizedek and his interaction with Abram and, and all that went on there actually is uh, a seed of, uh, that, that bears uh, fruit, that comes to flower and bears fruit in the New Testament as we see that it ultimately points to Christ. And so, Father, today as we uh, discuss uh, priesthoods and lineage, genealogies and, and other things like that, that that may not be our normal fare, I pray, Father, that you would help us to come away looking at Christ and seeing Him in this passage and seeing not just Him but our need for Him and how He is our perfect and eternal high priest. And by Him, because of what He has done, because of what He has earned on our behalf and the sacrifice that He has paid, we, by faith in Him, get to stand before You and have confidence that He saves to the uttermost all those who draw near to God through Him because He always lives to make intercession for us. And so as we discuss details and as we discuss unusual names, may we think of Christ and be drawn to Him even today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we get to our passage today, there are a couple of uh, uh, disclaimers I want to make um, along the way. First of all is I will say the name Melchizedek a lot, and it's possible because it's an unusual name. I may mispronounce it. I'm sorry. That just may happen. Um, also, I'm going to be talking about priesthoods, and I'm going to talk about the Levitical priesthood and the Aaronic priesthood and then the Melchizedekian priesthood, which comes from Melchizedek. And I want to, just to be clear of what we're talking about here, of course, Levi, uh, from which we get the term Levitical priesthood, Levi was one of the sons of Jacob. And uh, there were 12 sons, 12, 12 tribes, and you've got Levi, and from the lineage of Levi is where we have the priesthood. But it's not just all Levites. Not all Levites are priests. Only those who were born or descended from a particular Levite who was Moses' brother named Aaron. And so we call it the Aaronic priesthood. So those two, I will use those interchangeably. Sometimes I will say Aaronic. That's what the passage does here. Sometimes I will say Levitical. That's what the passage does here. But it refers to the same thing. It's referring to the priesthood in the uh, Old Testament under the Old Covenant that stems from uh, Aaron, who is the brother of Moses, and we have the Aaronic priesthood that comes from that. So just to clarify, don't get confused uh, if I say Levitical sometimes and Aaronic sometimes. That's what those things refer to. And of course, also I'm going to refer to Melchizedek's priesthood, and sometimes I may call that the Melchizedekian priesthood, though who would want to say a word that long? I don't know. But it is fun sometimes. And so, uh, just having that groundwork there. Uh, again, this all comes up because we talked last week from Genesis about this man named Melchizedek who showed up on the scene and it was kind of, uh, he was an, an unusual character. And so, just to kind of lay out where we're headed, uh, the goal really is to get through all of chapter 7 of Hebrews today. And uh, in order to do that, you've got an outline in your bulletin. And uh, I see three basic contrasts or comparisons that uh, our author is making here between Melchizedek and three different um, uh, entities or, or, or persons. First of all, there's a contrast between Melchizedek and Abram. That's the, that's the first contrast that's going to happen, and that's uh, part of your outline there. 
The second contrast is between Melchizedek's priesthood and the Aaronic or the Levitical priesthood. So the first is contrasting Abram with Melchizedek, and next is contrasting the Levitical priesthood with the Melchizedekian priesthood. All right, so the priesthoods will be contrasted there. And then thirdly, uh, we're going to see that the Aaronic priests themselves are contrasted with Jesus. All right, so we have a contrast between the actual priests themselves as it actually played out. So that, that kind of uh, should give us a handle on where we're going today. And the author is going to make some, some very powerful arguments about Jesus himself and about our own salvation. And, uh, and so we're going to uh, begin and, and uh, work through this today. Now, uh, why is he doing this? Why is smack in the, in the middle of Hebrews, why is he talking about Melchizedek? We went through it last week, and there are just a couple of verses about him. Well, if you remember what's happening in the book of Hebrews, and I know we've not worked our way all the way through it, but we've talked about it a couple of times. There was a church or a group of churches, and they were largely made up of Jews, Jewish Christians, and they had, it seems that they had faced uh, hardship before. They had faced persecution before. And, and they withstood the persecution. They stood up under it, and, it, and sometimes it was harsh. Sometimes it was merely losing uh, some of their, their property, perhaps. Other times, it, their life was in danger. They might have actually have lost their freedom. And so it was a relatively intense persecution, and praise God, they survived it. They were able to make it through that. And then, it seems like there's another potential wave of persecution coming. And they're, they're anticipating that, and they're thinking, well, I mean, we made it through once, but it wasn't very enjoyable. <laughs> and maybe the second time uh, is going to be worse, and maybe there will be a third time and a fourth time and a fifth time. And so they're, 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 it seems like they're questioning what they're going to do in, in the face of coming persecution. And one of the uh, potential solutions that it seems like they were considering, and maybe even the main solution that they were considering or the main solution that the author to the Hebrews is addressing is they were considering going back to Judaism. So they were Jewish Christians and they were thinking about just kind of getting rid of the Christian name and just going back to the Old Covenant, going back to uh, the Old Testament, going back to just being Jewish. It seems like that's what they were pondering. See, in, in that day and age, in that culture, it wasn't always advantageous to be Jewish. But it was legal, and it might occasionally be persecuted, but not nearly as much as if you were a Christian. And so it was kind of a safe haven for them to consider going back to that, and so the author is going to go through and he's going to talk about why that's not an option, why that's not a real option to go back to what was the shadow, to go back to what was the type, to go back to what was inferior to Jesus, who was better than everything there. Stick with Jesus instead of going back. And so that's kind of what's going on here. And, and in the midst of that, right in the midst of that argumentation and, and, uh, and that temptation that they were facing, we have this discussion here that comes up regarding Melchizedek. And so uh, we look here, we see that uh, Melchizedek is, uh, is compared to Abram himself. Look at verses 1 through 3. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem priest of the Most High God. Already we have something noteworthy there about Melchizedek's office. Office is, he is a priest. Well, okay, there are other priests, and there are other kings, and he's a king, but he's both priest and king. 
And that's unusual. That's unusual. And, and uh, we can see how uh, when we come to Christ and we come to learn of Christ as He's prophesied in the Old Testament, as we see Him and, and things develop in the New Testament, we see that He is prophet and priest and king. He is all of those, and the, the combination of those two, the, the priest and the king, is, uh, is an unusual combination, but that's who he is. Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of Most High God, met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, and to Abram he apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Melech is the, the Hebrew for king, and then righteousness, Tzedek. Uh, Melchizedek, and he's also king of Salem, which is related to the word shalom, that is, king of peace. And so his name even has significance. Melchizedek, king of Salem, there's even significance there, pointing to uh, grand truths about him, inspiring big ideas and big thoughts about what it would mean for him to be king of peace, what it would mean for him to be king of righteousness. And so it's, it, 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 it's, it anticipates it kind of inspires uh, curiosity about him and what he's like. And so, uh, it's very interesting that, uh, that uh, uh, how it continues about him. He is, verse 3, without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. What are we to do with that? If you were to read that verse by itself, you would think there's something exceedingly unusual about Melchizedek, not just his name, uh, real questions about him, what he is like. Well, the question really is, is he divine? I mean, if he doesn't have parents, where'd he come from? If he doesn't die, he lives on forever. Uh, is he eternal? Is he divine? Is he some sort of um, angelic being or perhaps a pre-incarnate Christ? Well, there are different opinions on this, and, and there is even a traditional uh, opinion that has been around for some time that he is, in fact, pre-incarnate Christ, that he is uh, what we call a Christophany, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. He himself, he's like showing up onto the scene of his own story, and he interacts with Abram, and he interacts in that situation, but it's actually, uh, it's actually Christ himself pre-incarnate. And that's, a, that's a, a relatively common belief, but I don't, I don't think that's the case. I think that Melchizedek had parents just like we had parents. I think that he died just like we will die. Okay? I think he's just as human as anybody else, um, but I think, it's, I think it's the way Genesis tells the story about him as literature that the New Testament author and even actually uh, David in Psalm 110 are picking up on that there's something unique about the way he is presented. And so, simply put, I think uh, this unusual character has certain resemblances to Christ. The author's not dealing with the man as man, as the man himself. He's dealing with the literature about the man. He's dealing with the text of Genesis and drawing conclusions based upon the text of Genesis, the way he is presented there. He appears on the scene out of nowhere. We don't know anything about him, and he's from the neighborhood where Abram has been living. When he appeared on the scene, we didn't hear anything about him. And interestingly, in a book that's been filled with genealogies, there's nothing mentioned about his parentage. 
There's nothing mentioned about where he comes from, about the line that he comes from, about anybody that comes after him. And in Genesis, where we've read genealogy after genealogy after genealogy, and we're not done yet, it's interesting that there is nothing about him. And I think that's what the author to the Hebrews is picking up on, is that we're told nothing about him. He's very mysterious. And specifically, not just that here's a man on the scene with no genealogy. Here is a priest on the scene, and there's no genealogy given. Particularly in the Old Covenant, it's a very, very important thing for a priest to be able to identify that he is from the tribe of Levi, and not just from the tribe of Levi, but that he is from the lineage of Aaron. He must prove that in order to be a priest. No one outside of those boundaries can serve as a priest. And in fact, for people who uh, were convinced of their own lineage as uh, Aaronic priests, that they were from that line, and yet if they couldn't prove it, they were not allowed to serve as priest. So we have an example uh, given in Ezra uh, chapter 2, and, and uh, we see in uh, verses 52, uh, 59 through 62 of Ezra chapter 2. So this is, these are the people who've gone into exile um, and the, the, the temple has been destroyed and, and, and everything's been thrown into chaos, right? Well, they're coming back from exile and these people are saying, hey, we're Levites, we want to serve as priests. And so they ask them, okay, show us your genealogy. Prove that you're of the line of Aaron. These people weren't able to do so. And so they weren't able to serve as priests. And so these people uh, were asked um, uh, about that, but uh, they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. They couldn't prove it. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as being unclean. They could not prove their lineage. Well, that makes it all the more interesting about Melchizedek, a priest, a priest of God Most High who shows up on the scene, and we don't know anything about him. For a Jew reading this, that would have been noteworthy because you've got to demonstrate your credentials. And he had no credentials. And so this Melchizedek is presented in a very unusual way, and that's really what the author to the Hebrews uh, picks up on is the unusual presentation of him. Whereas Melchizedek has no recorded beginning of days, our author is going to draw some conclusions. He's going he's to see that as pointing to Jesus who really does not have a beginning of days. Jesus the man has beginning of days, but the Son of God is eternal. So whereas Melchizedek has no recorded beginning of days. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, is really eternal and had no beginning of days. And whereas Melchizedek has no recorded end of life, Jesus is raised from the dead never to taste death again. And so he really does have no end of days. He continues to live on. And whereas Genesis tells us nothing about the end of Melchizedek's priesthood, in truth, there really is no end of Jesus priesthood. So he continues on. And so we have the author here. I don't think he's talking about this character who is some divine character or angelic being or, or something like that. I think he's, he's using the text to point to Christ in a similar way, by the way, that the psalmist does in Psalm 110. And just a plug for tonight, that's what we're going to be covering 
in uh, evening church. We're going to be preaching through Psalm 110, which uh, contains the verse, the Old Testament verse that is the most quoted in the New Testament, Psalm 110.1. And so if you want to hear that, we'll be uh, tonight at 6 o'clock across the way. So we, we read about Melchizedek, we learn about him and uh, his, about his life a little bit, very, very little, about his offices th- that he held. But what's really the kicker is what we see in verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abra- Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of his spoils. The, the real point is about Melchizedek's greatness, superiority to Abram. That's really the point, and we can see that in two main ways. The first is that Abram gave tithes to Melchizedek, thus indicating Melchizedek's superiority to him. That Abram had some, some, some obligation, as it were, that he was, he was giving to one greater than him, is the argument our author to the Hebrews is making here. And he, he takes that even further. He says, okay, now Abraham is going to have children. He's going to have grandchildren, great-grandchildren. And there's going to be Levi, and the, the Levites would receive, later on in the history of Israel, the Levites would receive an offering, tithes from the people. The people were responsible to pay tithes to the Levites because of the way they served. Not all as priests, but they all had a unique kind of service, and thus they received tithes from the general people, right? Because they were the, they were the tribe of service, the tribe of ministry to the nation of Israel. And the author is going to point out that, okay, these very people who received the tithes, it was as if they were present with Abram giving a tithe as well. So whereas they received the tithes later on, yet here in this instance they were giving the tithes, indicating that, that Melchizedek and his service was superior to the Levites and their service. There's a superiority there. But there's a second way we see that he is superior, and that's because Melchizedek gives a blessing to Abram. And he says in this passage here, it, it's, it's without question that the, the, the inferior is blessed by the superior. And so we see a couple of different reasons here why it is that Melchizedek is greater than Abram which is amazing for us because we've been reading the Abraham story, and he's the hero, as it were. He's the main character that we read about, and here suddenly comes on the scene one who is even greater than him, whose priesthood is greater than his, whose service is greater than his, whose position is greater than his. And so when you compare Abraham and and Melchizedek, Melchizedek is far superior. All right, so what about the priesthoods that they represent? Well, in the same, when we compare the, the priesthood of Aaron and the priesthood of Melchizedek, the new priesthood, the Melchizedekian priesthood is superior. All right? And he's, he starts uh, in verse 11. He points out that the Aaronic priesthood is imperfect. And, and by the way, one, one key word in this next section, 11 through the end of the chapter, is perfect or perfection or perfect. That's That's crucial. And he's saying here the Aaronic priesthood is imperfect. You see, the the problem, the situation that we as sinful people find ourselves in is that we are imperfect, right? There's something missing. There's something lacking. There's something twisted and bent and sinful. We are imperfect people. You don't have to look far. 
You don't even have to look over at your spouse to realize about imperfection, right? You're imperfect, right? We're imperfect. And so, since God Himself is perfect, since everything is in place, everything is whole and as it ought to be with God, and since He is our Creator and since He is infinitely above us, in order for us to be in His presence, we also must be perfect because no sin can remain in His presence. And so we have a problem, and that problem is imperfection. That problem is imperfection is like a, like a really nice euphemism for our problem. We have things wrong with it. We have sin. And that sin is grievous to God, and that sin is hateful to God. And it keeps us separated from Him. And so, in order for us to come into His presence, God isn't going to change, and we don't want God to change, and God can't change. He's perfect. We must become perfect. We must be completed. We must have everything put into place. And so, the way that happens is by a priest or a priesthood. God is ministering to us in some way to bring about perfection because we need perfection. Well, we start off right off the bat and we learn that the Aaronic priesthood is imperfect. And that's a sad thing. Chapter 7, verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, if protection, uh, perfection had been attainable by that means, then there would have been no, me- no need to replace it. There would have been no need for something else. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? Under the Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, perfection was not attainable. And he's going to develop a little bit more why that is the case. And this is talked about in Psalm 110 and verse 4, uh, prophetically talking about this one who is to come. But the old priesthood could not perfect the worshiper since the law made nothing perfect. Look down at chapter 7 and verse 19, where the law makes nothing perfect. The law can't complete it. Now, this is very similar to what Paul says over in Romans chapter 8 and uh, verses 1 through 4. Write that down. You, you probably know it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God for that. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. You see, the law is a perfect standard. The law is a perfect representation of God's character and expectations. It's perfect. There's nothing lacking. What's the problem in the equation? The person trying to do it. Me. You. And so thus the perfect standard cannot perfect us because we can't meet the standard. And so God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That the standard, the perfect standard of the law is a good and right and holy and perfect standard. 
And the result for you and me is damnation, not perfection, because we can't meet it. Our flesh won't allow it. And so you've got this perfect standard. And that law, that standard cannot bring about perfection in us. And this was a major problem in the Aaronic priesthood. It, it, it had come about in this fashion under the law, ministering the law to people, a law which cannot perfect. So there was, there was a, a, an inherent problem within the Aaronic priesthood itself. But there's a new priesthood. Verse uh, 15 brings us into a discussion about a new priesthood. This new priesthood being the Melchizedekian or the, the priesthood of Melchizedek. And we see that it is superior. Verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirements concerning bodily descent, by the power of an indestructible life. Under the old priesthood, a priest was made a priest because he had the right credentials, because he had the right lineage, he had the right parentage, and so he was made a priest according to that. But under the new priesthood, Jesus is made priest based upon the power of an indestructible life, not because of, not because of his descent or the tribe he had come from or something like that, but by virtue of him being himself perfectly holy and by him living forever. Thus, he is able to be declared this priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so this priesthood is superior. The old priesthood ultimately proved to be weak and useless. It couldn't perfect. The goal of the priesthood is to perfect, and the priesthood could not perfect. And it was ultimately weak and useless, but the new one provides a better hope. The old one made nothing perfect, and it's ultimately set aside, but the new one, by it we are able to draw near to God, which is the goal. So the author here is making a, a contrast between the old covenant priesthood under Aaron and the Melchizedekian priesthood accomplished by Jesus. This one, the old covenant priesthood, was not able to perfect, was not able to deliver the goods and, and make you uh, presentable, acceptable to God to bring you into His presence, whereas this, this other priesthood of Melchizedek, He accomplishes that work. And so the new priesthood after the order of Melchizedek is clearly vastly superior to the old, the imperfect order of Aaron. But now the last comparison, and this is, uh, this is the remainder of the chapter here, how do the Aaronic priests themselves compare with Jesus, who is our high priest after this new order? Well, of course, Jesus is superior in various ways. And I'll work quickly through this because I want to draw some conclusions. First of all, in verses 20 through 22, we see the priesthood is established based upon a divine oath. The new priesthood is established based upon an oath, and we read that from uh, Psalm 110, and you see that here in, uh, in verse 21 as well. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind, you are a priest forever. God has sworn He will accomplish it. He has sworn that this priesthood, this ministry, this effort to, to bring imperfect people somehow into the presence of a perfect God, to make imperfect sinful people 
somehow acceptable and welcome in God's presence. How can that happen? In order to accomplish that, there's this priesthood, and it's only the Melchizedekian priesthood where God says, by this means, I will accomplish it. God gives his own oath that it will be done. It's established based upon a divine oath, whereas the Aaronic priesthood had not been established by those means. And secondly, Jesus' priesthood is superior because his ministry is permanent. His ministry is permanent. Look at verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Josephus and other old scholars in looking at the history of the nation of Israel have identified the number of high priests that existed. And then you count the total number of priests. And, and the reason there had to be multiple, multiple priests is because they kept dying. They were like you and me. So the ministry of that priest had a limited duration. It had an expiry date. When the priest expired, his ministry expired. And they had to bring in a new one. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He never has to lay down the, the mantle. He never has to hand off his ministry to someone else. I mean, I, I know that when we come to church on a Sunday morning and we hear the Word of God preached, that, that you would rather have Jesus standing right here preaching, and, and instead you just have me, right? I'm, I'm representing him, but that's not because he's handed off the ministry to me. It's because he's governing all things from glory, and the task he's given to elders is to proclaim God's Word to God's people. That's why we're doing that. It's not because I've taken over the ministry of Jesus, for which we can all be grateful. He's still ministering. His ministry doesn't end. He never has to lay it down. He never has to, to, to find a replacement. He never has to train a replacement. It never ends. It continues. It continues. So the old one, there were many priests and they kept dying. Jesus is the final priest uh, since he lives forever. The final priest after this new order. Consequently, verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost all those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is really the punchline. If you underline in your Bible, underline this verse. This verse will give you encouragement. Since Jesus is an effective eternal high priest, who, by the way, has offered the perfect sacrifice that meets all of the requirements. He himself is that priest. He himself is the sacrifice as well. But he's a, an eternal priest. He doesn't have his own sin that he's got to make offerings for. That's another problem with the Levitical priesthood is because the man serving as high priest himself was a sinner, so he would have to make atonement for himself and then go make atonement for the people, and it was an ongoing thing. We have our own sin to deal with. Jesus didn't have that. He had no sin of his own, and yet he laid down his life. He offered the sacrifice for the sake of you and for the sake of me. And he, as the perfect, sinless, undying high priest, having made the perfect eternal sacrifice for us, 
now continues to minister on our behalf. He doesn't age out. He's not going to die. There's not going to be some other replacement. There's not going to come a time when Jesus stops ministering on our behalf. According to our verse here, in verse 25, He always lives to make intercession for His people, for all those who draw near to God through Him. He always lives. He's not going to die. He's not taking a nap. He's ongoing. He's making intercession. I think we, we don't, uh, I don't think we pay enough attention to that idea of intercession by a priest. But really the idea is the sacrifice has been made and now it is the blood of that sacrifice is pled on behalf of the person who offered the sacrifice. So when you read through the Old Testament law and it's talking about the sacrifices, you know, the, the person was to bring a, you know, a, a, a a guilt offering or, or a, a gift offering or wh- whatever it was, they were to bring that in. It was to be sacrificed and atonement made for them. So if I have sinned and you have sinned and you bring in a guilt offering under the old system and you offer that sacrifice, atonement is made for you. Not for me. It's for you. That's the portion of intercession by the high priest is interceding on behalf of you brought the gift. The, gift is, the blood of that gift is pled on your behalf before God. Well, when we think about Jesus, who is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, the sacrifice, the offering is perfect. It's complete. It meets all the requirements. Now, for whom does he plead it? All those who draw near to God through him. He doesn't fail. He doesn't miss a one. He's pleading it. He's pleading it. He's pleading it for His people. When will He stop? When will He stop pointing to the sufficiency of that sacrifice on our behalf? Never. Because He always lives to make intercession for His people. And therefore, because of that, according to verse 25, He is able to save to the uttermost. He's able to save all the way to the end. He's able to save in every way necessary. All those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession. This is what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 33, 34, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. We talked about that in Sunday school. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So, Stephen was talking in Sunday school about justification and what's involved there, and as, as if you're in a courtroom, and, and, but the, the verdict has already been rendered. Not guilty. Righteous. And for all those who are in Christ, that's the verdict, already rendered, righteous. Okay? Well, now an accuser comes in and says, yeah, but you didn't see. He was mad at me on the road. And he said harsh words or, or something, right? Some, some other, who, who's, who's going to bring an accusation? The verdict's already been rendered. The price has already been paid. The sacrifice has already been given. And there's Jesus continuing to intercede on our behalf. I think there's more involved in this intercession for the sake of time. We'll keep it brief, but I think 
uh, from Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 18, one of the things he is interceding for us is for any help that we have. He, he, he intercedes for help in time of need. Because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He's helping us by means of intercession. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus, even now, pleading on your behalf, certainly regarding salvation, certainly regarding justification, certainly regarding your eternity in glory with the Father, as well as for the help that you need in dealing with that difficult relationship. Figuring out how to resist that temptation. Figuring out how to live in light of that hurt. The types of help that you really need, those are the types He is giving you by means of His intercession. I think of uh, Peter. And he was uh, approaching the time when his Lord was about to be uh, crucified. And of course, you remember Peter was gung-ho. He was, you know, he was... He was going to stick with Jesus to the end, and, and uh, right? Well, Jesus says to him, I have prayed for you, because we know what happens. When the chips are down, Peter abandons ship. Peter denies his Lord three times. But Jesus says to him in advance, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus, who knows all things, Jesus, who knew the very temptation that that Peter would go through, and he knew exactly how Peter would fall. And it was directly regarding Jesus himself that, that Peter was going to be tempted and would indeed deny his Lord. Jesus says, I've prayed for you. And by the way, when you come back from that, I have a ministry for you. I want you to strengthen your brothers. Jesus gave Peter help in time of need. And yes, Peter fell flat on his face three times. And he returned as Jesus said he would. So I don't know what all his intercession involves, but whatever it might be, we can assume that it would include anything and everything needed to see us receive the final salvation he has won for us on the cross and see us raised with him on that last day. He will accomplish it. That is his ministry that he has by the oath of the Father. Will Jesus fail? Never. Will Jesus be caught off guard and maybe drop the ball? Fumble with you, perhaps? Never. Will Jesus die? Will He come to the end of His ability to minister on your behalf? Never. Consequently, therefore, because of that, He is able to save you to the uttermost. All you who draw near to God through Him. That is encouragement. That is encouragement. For the sake of time, I want to conclude by just reading these last few verses, and then we will go to the Lord's Supper. And I think we've been well set up for it, talking about Jesus, our high priest. For verse 26, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests who offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all 
when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And because Jesus is perfect, having received a perfect priesthood, having received by the oath of the Father this ministry, He is able to perfect you. To give you all that you need to be in God's presence, to stand before Him as one of His own, so that your sins are taken away, so that His righteousness is credited to you, so that you stand before Him because of the ministry of Jesus, our high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, because of what He has done, we are able to stand there perfected with every need met, with everything in place for us to be in God's presence. And this isn't just some future hope. This isn't just something that we really wish we could have someday, but it's too much to ask. This is what Jesus has accomplished. And it's yours by faith. So as we move to the Lord's Supper, where we, if the men who are going to serve it would come forward, please. As we go to partake of the Lord's Supper, this is what we're celebrating. This is what we're reminding ourselves of. We're reminding ourselves of the offering that Christ has made of Himself, the perfect and final and, and once for all offering that He has made for us. And He, as our high priest, is even now pleading on our behalf. And this is what we celebrate. We celebrate the body and the blood of Christ as He gave Himself for us, as, as He took upon Himself the, 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 the guilt, the, the penalty for our sin. And in that moment, He became the most sinful being ever and bore the wrath of God on the cross because my sin had been placed there, because your sin had been placed there. And He bore that wrath fully and completely, so that at the end of that, there was no more wrath left for you, Christian. It has all been expended on Christ for your sake. So the wrath of God is dealt with. Forgiveness of sins is there, and it is ours by faith in Christ because of what He has accomplished. And so as we go to uh, the Lord's Supper now, This is something for Christians to participate in, to participate in joyfully, seriously, but joyfully. But if you're you're one who has not trusted Christ, if you've not believed in Christ this way, I would encourage you to do so now, to do so now. And when when you cast yourself upon Him, when you draw near to God through Jesus, you will find Him to be a perfect Savior, and He will save you to the uttermost all the way, dealing with all your sins. And you say, but you don't know what my sins are. Well, you don't know what my sins are. Jesus' payment is adequate, super abundant to pay the penalty for your sins. And by faith in Christ, you too can be perfected because He does the perfecting. You will be prepared. Now, when we say perfected, it sounds like we're, we think we're perfect. You know I'm not perfect. I know you're not perfect. Perfect. 
That's not what we mean. I mean everything in place for us to be fully and completely and finally and joyfully accepted by God into His family. You can be perfected in that way. And so if you haven't trusted Christ in this way, please let the elements pass and just uh, uh, think about what we have talked about in Christian. As these elements approach and as we go through this process, this is a time for us to reflect on, indeed, my own guilt. I don't even have to dig all that far into the past to really find some guilt, right? We have sin. Well, confess that sin. It's real. Confess it to God and you will find forgiveness in Christ. And as the elements come and as we have reflected on our, on our own guilt and then we've reflected on the payment that He has made for it, the result for us is very great joy that the penalty has been paid for us. And because of what Christ has done, we get to have fellowship with the Father. We get to call Him our Father. And so we move to this point in our service, and let's, let's take up the bread, please. As the elements are being passed around here after this first element, after I've prayed, take this time and ponder and confess your sin. This isn't a time for us to... Um, wallow in our sins, but we want to confess them. We want to acknowledge what they are. We want to confess them to Him and find forgiveness in Christ, and it's ours. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Let's pray. Father, we come to this point in our service where we get to celebrate together by partaking of a meal Christ's sacrifice for us, the perfect once-for-all sacrifice where all of our sins were dealt with for all who have faith in Christ. And Father, as we contemplate Jesus' body broken for us, I, I confess that it was my sin that put Him there. It was... It was my sin he was paying for, and not, not mine alone, but I confess my sin and find forgiveness in Christ. Thank you for it. We ask for forgiveness. We know that the payment is made, and we know that we will have in Christ forgiveness for that sin. So as the bread is being passed, Father, I pray that you would move in our hearts by your Spirit, help us to reflect upon this sacrifice that was made on our behalf. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Next, we come to the cup. Paul continues, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the cup, we rejoice that because of the payment Christ has made on our behalf, by faith in Him we have full forgiveness of our sins. And because of the new covenant in the blood of Christ, we have righteousness credited to us. We have His record of having kept the law credited to our account. We have new life in us. You have given us new hearts, placed your spirit within us. You've worked in us in such a way that that we want to obey you. And this this is your work on our behalf, and we rejoice in it. Even as we partake of this cup, we give you thanks, and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Jesus said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And I have a privilege of saying to you that uh, this morning, if you have faith in Christ, if you've come here in a spirit of repentance, then by virtue of Christ's death, which we just celebrated, your sins are forgiven. You don't have to carry them out of here. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in... uh, Jesus, our Savior, our High Priest, who didn't have sins of His own to atone for, but He laid down His life for mine, that He gave Himself for me, that He gave His own body to reconcile me to You, to reconcile us to You. And we get to celebrate that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we partake. Participate in, uh, in this way of remembering and encouraging one another and being ministered to by you. We are grateful for the forgiveness that we have in Christ. We are grateful that we have the righteousness of Christ credited to us. We're grateful that we get to be perfected by Jesus, our great high priest, and thus by faith in him we get to stand before you. We rejoice and we celebrate Christ and we celebrate this new life that we have in him. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all, both now and forevermore. Amen. There's going to be a family up front who would love to pray with you as well. This is our Sunday of the month when we do a benevolence offering, so there's a box in the back and a tray in the foyer if you want to give there. That helps to support uh, brothers and sisters in Christ and, and others who are suffering need. Otherwise, God bless you all, and you are dismissed.